0: Hello and welcome to the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law at Peking University. In this podcast, we examine the intersections between law and transnational challenges. My name is Steven Minas. I'm a member of the faculty at the School of Transnational Law. In this episode, we are continuing our STL Law and Sustainability Colloquium series with a presentation by Dr. Fabiano de Andrade Correa on the topic, exploring the linkages between climate change and agriculture and their legal and policy implications. Uh, Our speaker Fabiano is a lawyer and a legal specialist in sustainable development, law and policy. Uh, He has worked as an international legal consultant collaborating with a variety of international organizations. Uh, Fabiano obtained his PhD in law from the European University Institute and he also teaches regularly at the Luiss University in Rome in their Masters in Food Law program, as well as guest lecturing at other universities. What follows is Fabiano's presentation on the linkages between climate change and agriculture, forestry and land use in international law, including the Paris Agreement. And then we have after that a question and answer session.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. Indeed, the pleasure is, is mine to be here. Uh, first of all, greetings from Brazil where from where I'm speaking to you today. I would very much like to be able to be in Beijing for, for this talk. It's really one of my top of, of my list of countries that I would love to visit. So hopefully once we're back to a more normal life, we could make that happen. But in any case, very pleased to, to be here and to discuss this topic with you today. As uh, Stephen indicated, uh, I'm a lawyer and international consultant and have been working and studying about climate change for quite some time. It's one of my main research uh, interests and focal areas of my work as well. And I've been in in particular uh, starting to, to get interested in the relationship between climate change and agriculture as I've worked for several years with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome where I lived for eight years until the, the beginning of the pandemic in, at the end of 2019. This is an area that fascinates me because I think uh, it, it connects so many other areas, which from a sustainable development perspective, which is uh, a perspective that I like very much to, to have, is, is also a, you know, a super interesting uh, subject. You connect social issues with economic development, with environmental protection, and is uh, indeed one of the most prominent, I think, one of the most, most prominent areas nowadays, the, the way that we use land and, and our food systems and the environmental impact of all of that is really uh, coming to the forefront of climate discussion. So I'm, I'm very excited to, to give a small talk to you about, about this today and to also interact and see your questions and, and uh, opinions about this issue. I really divided the, uh, the presentation today in three main areas. First, I'd like to talk about considerations on the environmental impacts of food and agriculture, climate change and sustainable development. Uh, then touch upon the international climate change regime and its relation to food and agriculture. Moving finally to some challenges and options uh, for national implementation of this regime and, and legal pathways that are possible. For for addressing climate change adaptation and mitigation in the agriculture sector. So, in terms of, of an introduction, I, I, I've been, as Stephen said, teaching about this subject. And I always like to contextualize this topic within the broader area and the broader challenges that we are facing today. Uh, and this really starts with, uh, with what's going on in general in our planet. And I know it seems very broad, but um even yesterday I, I watched a documentary on, on Netflix that I really recommend for those that that have access to it which uh, talks about planetary boundaries and then this also comes from a, a report published earlier this year which uh, which addresses the fact that as, as we know our planet uh, planet earth has seen various eras in its in its development and its and its formation as we have it today it has been uh Really stable for the past 10,000 years, so to say, an era which is called the Holocene, in which uh, the natural elements of the planet came to a balance and really allowed civilization to thrive uh, based on reliable weather, which enabled reliable, reliable agriculture and the stability of life based on these natural boundaries. However, we, we've been entering slowly for the past uh, years uh, into a new era, as science has been warning us, which is called, is called the Anthropocene. Now, as you know, Anthro refers to uh, mankind. So um, because the, of the way that we've been treating our planet, we are now living in an era in which the balance of the planet is being strongly affected by our, our actions. So human interference has become a prominence, a major force in planetary uh, uh, interactions and uh, and stability and balance, of course, uh, causing an unbalance of the natural elements of the planet. So it really is something that we've never experienced before. And it really requires uh, a lot of our attention because it comes along with many challenges. Within this broader context, climate change has been consistently um, portrayed and, and warned uh, as really one of the greatest challenges and threats that we've seen in our, uh, in our society. I like very much to refer to the main scientific reports about it so that we really remain focused on, on science and in reliable information. And in, in this regard, the, the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are really one of the main sources to go. And already many years ago, as, as many of you may know, the IPCC is a super interesting uh, body. Its main work, uh, and it's something that I think is quite interesting, is to synthesize uh, science about climate change. So it really collects all scientific data about climate change produced by all over the world, and, and produces what they call assessment reports. Uh, these assessment reports uh, have had many additions, but already. Since 2014, the IPCC has been telling us that the warming of the climate system of our planet is unequivocal. So there's really no doubt about it. And since the 1950s, many of these changes are unprecedented all over the Holocene, all over that era that I was explaining before, in which we had a more or less stable climate. After, of course, you know, the, all the ice ages and all the changes that had occurred in the past. But not only that, human influence on the climate system is clear. So in the age of the Anthropocene, our human interference is also strongly affecting the the Earth's climate system because mostly of the emission of the so-called greenhouse gases, which are extremely likely to have caused uh, this increase in global average uh, temperature. So two important messages uh, were contained in this report. The first was that uh, the continued emissions uh, of greenhouse gases would cause the further warming and long lasting challenges with severe and irreversible impacts for people, but also for the ecosystem. But not all was bad news. So these negative impacts can still be avoided or at least reduced if we do keep the rise of the global temperature below two degrees below two degrees Celsius, which requires, however, a very quick decarbonization over the coming years. As I said in the beginning, uh, it's really, I think, fundamental to see climate change not as an environmental challenge, as as many people still try to to portray it, but really as a a challenge of sustainable development with consequences that impact our environment, such as the loss of biodiversity and ecosystems, but also strong social impacts such as the loss of livelihoods and food insecurity, threats to territories of various countries, and disruption of national economic systems as well, with very important economic consequences, impacts that can cause a a significant share of our global GDP. So uh, as a lawyer, I I think uh, I've seen at least over the past two years, perhaps, uh, an increasing understanding of this fact uh, and, and, one sign that shows this to me, and is that uh, the, the very, I believe, uh, the greater discussion that I see about these topics with uh, the private sector, for instance, with my colleagues uh, who are corporate lawyers, all the discussions about environmental, social and governance issues. So I think there's really starting to, to see a, a realization. That climate change is much more than an environmental problem but a problem of sustainable development for for our society our global society so it's important to to and i give all this context because i think it's it's really important then when we talk about agriculture to to understand where we are coming from understanding the underlying challenges that are causing us to interfere so much with the planet and with the climate system have to do with our own development model uh, in which Our population has been growing exponentially over the past century and our development uh, has been based in unsustainable use of natural resources and in pollution, uh, fossil fuel sources as our main energy sources. However, we live in a planet with finite resources. So uh, we're really causing ourselves to, to develop in a way that is not sustainable over time. Population growth, for instance, is, uh, is, is something that uh, I find fascinating to look at these charts. Uh, our population on the Earth was more or less stabilized in about 1 billion until the beginning of the 19th century. Then with the Industrial Revolution, with Agricultural Revolution and so on and so forth, we've jumped very quickly to what we have today, more than 7 billion, only in a middle of, uh, of 100 and so years. With uh, you know, uh, very important impacts, including the need to produce so much more food for all this population, and the environmental impact that that has. Another chart that I find very interesting is produced by, by this organization, and it shows how many Earths we would need if every, everybody on our planet would live, for instance, as, the, the, as a citizen of these countries, and when you go to more developed uh, countries starting already, uh, even emerging countries like China, you would need more than one planet to provide natural resources needed for all the population if everybody would live the same lifestyle. But when you go to the United States and uh, some European countries, you already need more than two, sometimes four uh, planets. This brings us to the the core topic of our talk today, in which we see a retrofeeding, a cyclical effect between uh, agriculture, you know, food production and consumption, also the, the issue of food loss and waste in, in, in which I will get a little uh, later on, uh, and climate change and environmental degradation, how, how these processes are reinforcing each other. Uh, now, in 2019, uh, the IPCC published also a very interesting report about land, and that already starts to give uh, a hint uh, on what science is saying and the role of the agriculture sector. So, land can be uh, simultaneously a source and a sink of greenhouse gases such as uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, uh, but it, it, does, uh, it does so due to several factors. As we know, the, that balance of the, of the planet that I mentioned in, in the Holocene was based in the interaction between the Earth's natural resources. For instance, the fact that a large portion of, of the Earth used to be covered by forests, and forests uh, absorb CO2 and release oxygen in their processes such as photosynthesis, but also the ocean and other and types of vegetation. However, when you, for instance, cut down a forest, not only the forest stops absorbing the CO2 and, and releasing the oxygen, but it also releases uh, some of the carbon dioxide that is stored in the forest soil therefore uh, really stopping to be a a sink of CO2 and becoming a source of CO2. Uh, So the IPCC report of 2019 showed us that humans have directly affected more than 70% of the ice-free land surface of the planet. And that is, uh, you know, it's easy to understand why that impact that I mentioned has been uh, going on. If, If we have changed already such a big proportion of of the planet, and in that interfering in the natural processes that that, that led to that uh, balance and stabilization of the Holocene. That is a major challenge, not only because of the impact uh, on issues such as climate change, but also, for instance, for the stability of food supply for this growing population that we are seeing, and we are expected to reach um, up to 10 billion people by the end of our century, our current century, which uh, the, the, the stability of the food system and this increase that will be needed to feed uh, everybody will be threatened by magnitude and frequency of extreme weather events uh, and, other, and other challenges that will come along with it. But not only that, for instance, there are other challenges such as the fact that increased CO2 concentration can also lower nutritional quality of some crops. So uh, we really are seeing a very important challenge here. But at the same time, the land sector can be part of the solution for this problem. And in fact, in all the scenarios of climate change mitigation that the IPCC analyzed and and included in this uh, this and in the other reports that that they published over the past years, mitigation options in the land and agricultural sectors were always a part of the solutions that that were presented. Continuing on the um, on the impacts of agriculture and starting to be a bit more specific in climate change discussions, the agriculture sector is, uh, which includes as well um, crops and livestock, is combined with forestry and other land use, including land use change as well. In this acronym uh, called AFOLU. So this uh, sector, combined like that, is estimated to emit uh, between 23 and 24% of global greenhouse gases. That is a very large share, coming on second spot after only after energy, but ahead of other sectors that really come to our minds uh, much uh, in a much you know spontaneous way when we talk about climate change, such as industry and transportation. You always Think about using electric cars and uh, and, and optimizing energy uh, industry use and so on, but looking at the agricultural uh, forestry, and, and land use sectors is just as important because of this very uh, in, uh, very uh, considerable share that this sector has for for climate change emissions. That those 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 figures are from uh, an FAO 2016 report. That is freely available uh, online. But not only that, not only uh, agriculture and, and the land use that is needed to produce it has this enormous uh, impact in terms of emissions. The way that we consume food uh, is, also, uh, is also very relevant. And in fact, another report published in 2015 showed that one third of global food production is either lost or wasted each year. And that is also a very, very large number. The equivalent to 1.3 billion tons of edible food every year that uh, is either lost during um, harvesting processes and, and processing uh, of, 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 the, of the materials or wasted during consumption, so really at household level. That is equivalent to an estimated 8 percent greenhouse gas emission so, if, if food loss was was considered uh, in itself, it would be a very big source of our emissions uh, as well. So, considering everything together, the way that we produce and consume food is really at the forefront, as we as we said at the start of of climate change uh, of climate change mitigation and adaptation discussions, because of all these these impacts. But not only that, as I said, there is a retrofeeding effect, and the IPCC also demonstrated that as climate change continues, uh, for instance, to uh, cause higher temperatures uh, every year, issues such as water scarcity, soil erosion, tropical yield decline, and food supply instabilities all have very important impacts directly linked to these temperature increases. Here you can see to the left, you know, one degree, at which we are already roughly 1.5, which is one of the targets of the Paris Agreement for Climate Change that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and then moving to one, uh, to two, uh, three, four, five degrees in which really science says that we enter unexplored territory. And we really don't know what is what is going to happen. Uh, also in terms of, of, of food production and, and the use that is possible for the different types of of land and ecosystem. So in in a nutshell, uh, food production has a huge impact on the environment and contributes to climate change, whereas climate change will have, and in fact already has a huge impact on food production and food security, therefore threatening not only our economy, but also our social stability and our lifestyle, so to say. And uh, production and consumption patterns really matter because the way that we are doing now is just not sustainable. So this was uh, the, the first introductory part. Now I'll, I'll briefly talk about the international legal regime on climate change by focusing on our, the current instrument that we have in force, which is the Paris Agreement. Uh, the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015 uh, under the framework of the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. And it comes to reinforce uh, and strengthen the implementation of the convention with with new global goals and a new uh, architecture for countries to work in developing uh, their plans to to contribute to the fight against climate change. This is just a a snapshot of of the architecture of the Paris Agreement itself. with a general part where it talks about the goals and national contribution, then the substantive elements and obligations, talking about mitigation, adaptation, the management of GHG sinks and reservoirs, cooperative approaches such as carbon markets and loss and damage, then supportive measures in terms of climate financing, technology, capacity building and implementation mechanisms uh, such as the transparency mechanism the global stock take and the compliance committee i won't go into into each of them because we wouldn't have time but i do want to touch upon its main uh, its main point including uh, its focus so whereas the framework convention uh, main goal was to achieve and stabilization a stabilization of the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere at a level that avoided dangerous interference of mankind in the climate system. The Paris Agreement comes to strengthen the implementation of the convention and the global response to uh, to, to the challenge of climate change by bringing a temperature target that responds directly to the IPCC's fifth assessment report that recommended that we do not let uh, the global temperature increase so, two degrees, increasing adaptation to the climate, to the changing climates that we can, cannot avoid anymore, and promote uh, low uh, greenhouse gas emissions development pathways, and strengthening climate finance, which is required to to uh, to undertake all this uh, all these changes and transitions. So, as I said, the uh, the main uh, the main goal is really to keep the global average temperature well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels and undertake efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees with two caveats achieving a global peaking in greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible which is an, an interesting construction for a legal document but in international law sometimes we, we need to be creative it's, it's not easy to reach consensus on these uh, on these very uh, pressing topics and achieving a balance between uh, the our anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions by sources and the removals by sinks in the second half of this century now sinks can be natural sinks such as uh, in, you know increasing forest area which is by the way something that China has been doing consistently over the past uh, over the past year but could also be uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies that are really starting to to be developed. Uh, Still not completely reliable in the sense that it would be enough, but it's an area that is gaining increased attention. And the main, I just wanted to mention also the main uh, instrument created by the Paris Agreement, which are the nationally determined contributions, uh, (NDCs), which are plans the countries need to prepare and submit every five years with a progression in time every time that they create a new one, where uh, they outline uh, the mitigation and adaptation and other measures that they uh, propose to do to contribute to that global goal. So it really is completely reversing the logic of the previous climate change agreement, which was the Kyoto Protocol, that had a more top-down approach, determining at uh, top level how much percent countries with binding obligations needed to reduce their emissions with the parents and women, it's different. Countries themselves say how much they can contribute, also responding to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. And they communicate that every five years, always striving to progress in this ambition uh, over time. And also formulating and communicating low emission development strategies. So the NDCs create a cycle of five years. And uh, in the middle of these cycles, uh, you, we have uh, those, uh, those implementation mechanisms uh, such as the stock take and the transparency mechanism reviews that really uh, uh, analyze all the, all the information, uh, both with regards to the fact that they are being achieved or not, but also how, which is their impact to our ability or not to reach the, the two degree target over time. So we will have the first global stock take in 2023. And by this, by 2020, uh, countries were supposed to have submitted a new NDC. Uh, And because of the pandemic, this process has been a bit messy, but the idea is really that by COP26 uh, in uh, in Glasgow this year, which apparently is going to take place even in person, as I've I've heard uh, over this week, uh, this will be a prominent topic, together with uh, various issues that are lacking in what we call the Paris Agreement Rulebook. So, the the rules that will be developed to implement the different mechanisms. So, how does agriculture come into this uh, into this framework? Uh, for the first time, the issue of food security was mentioned in the preamble of the Paris Agreement. So, therefore, recognizing this as an important an important uh, issue in in the framework of of, of, of the debate, but also uh, as uh, a 2016 study of FAO showed, 89% of the countries that submitted an MDC uh, mentioned uh, mitigation contributions in the a EFOLU sector, and 69% of countries that included adaptation measures included uh, the agriculture sectors such as crops, livestock, forestry, fisheries and agriculture in these adaptation objectives. In addition to that, 54 countries include food security and malnutrition among the major major risks they face under climate change. So it really is a sector that has very much come into the the international discussion on climate change. How does that translate uh, into national action and, and legislation? First of all, the, the, I just wanted to mention briefly uh, that uh, all these discussions have led to different concepts and, and different ideas on how to address challenges between uh, that that link agriculture to to climate change. And one of them is the concept of climate smart agriculture that really aims at reorienting traditional agriculture policy and approaches into one that considers simultaneously and in as much as possible. A sustainable increase in agriculture production and incomes, also responding to this uh, increasing need of food that, uh, that we, will, uh, we will see because of the growing population that we mentioned in the beginning, and in there there are different uh, different, uh, different options that can be considered such as conservation agriculture, agroforestry and so on. Then, Adaptation that really needs to become a part of of, of climate change, of agriculture policy uh, to reduce the exposure of farmers to risks and increase the resilience of the agriculture agriculture sector and of food systems to the threats of climate change. And there are various uh, instruments that can be used, but for instance, increasing climate change considerations in zoning and land use planning, but also providing climate insurance to the farmers. And of course, in as much as possible, trying to mitigate the emissions from the agriculture sector. So removing emissions uh, for each calorie or kilo of food produced. And that can, do, can, can, can take place, for instance, um, avoiding deforestation from agriculture. That is a major challenge here in my country, in, in Brazil, but also managing better the use of soil and the use of uh, inputs such as fertilizers, increasing uh, forest areas, uh, combined with, with agriculture so, uh, so as to increase uh, the, the sink ability and managing livestock. So now what does that have to do with laws and policies? I wanted to mention two different aspects of legislation. The first, uh, climate uh, framework legislation, which is a trend that we are seeing in many countries. What is a framework climate legislation? It's a piece of law that really is passed to organize climate change action at national level so, uh, several countries have enacted that kind of legislation nowadays uh, the United kingdom was a prominent early example but also New Zealand has had a, has had a, a very ambitious climate law uh, that is more recent these uh, these framework laws include issues such as uh, putting into law a a climate change goal or even a climate budget so how much emissions uh, that country can can uh, can have so as to stay within the sa- a safe uh, limit uh, with regards to the, to the Paris Agreement's objectives. It usually creates uh, climate institutions such as climate change committee or adv- advisory body and creates uh, determines work plans into how how to organize uh, climate change action in, in the different sectors. And then of course also sectoral policies and legislation in the various sectors including agriculture and how they interact. Now, uh, this is still a challenge because uh, the FO, FOLU sector still uh, sees, for instance, much less legal action as com- if we compare, for instance, with uh, energy-related climate change acts. This uh, came from a study of the Grantham uh, center, Research Center in the United Kingdom that does excellent legal research about climate change, including publishing Reports that, uh, that analyze worldwide both climate laws and uh, and, uh, and litigation. So if you're interested, I, I recommend it. So we see really a challenge of, of creating more laws and policies in the AFOLU sectors that have climate change objectives as well. There, there are various legal areas uh, that, that can come into play and, and that are relevant. And I just wanted to bring some indicative areas here. And I also uh, put here a link to a study that I developed with with FAO that goes in-depth into each of these areas, such as laws that uh, have the objective of managing agricultural land, forest land, and land use change. So the conversion, for instance, of forest areas and how that that is regulated. Then uh, legal provisions aimed at reducing or avoiding emissions through measures such as deforestation and fire control, spatial planning and land use, afforestation, reforestation and sustainable forest management. Then regulating practices that uh, that contribute to climate mitigation, such as uh, conservation or or regenerative agriculture, the regulation of soils and, and, for instance, if soil can be tilled or not. Uh, which has an impact in in the ability of soil to act as a carbon sink, but also the use of fertilizers, water management, of course, which is a major topic, manure management and uh, and GHG capture in this sector, and also incentives for climate-smart agriculture, such as the inclusion uh, of emissions and removals uh, from land uh, in carbon markets and offset mechanisms, and also payment for ecosystem services. And uh, and also other uh, enabling uh, areas such as tenure security uh, as a precondition for more sustainable management of natural resources. So yeah, that, that was just a brief snapshot of legal areas that can be uh, considered in the intersection between climate change and agriculture. Now let me go back to that slide that just uh, mentioned that Everybody really has a role to play when we talk about this. So for governments, for instance, there are roles such as submitting and implementing the national the, the NDCs, coordinating national policies, laws, and institutions, and providing incentives for the transition to a low-carbon economy, the private sector in adopting uh, sustainability practices and developing new products, providing innovation and research, but also civil society and, and, and uh, that's why I, I believe it's so important to participate in uh, in events like today, to raise awareness and disseminate information, because we still see so much disinformation out there and, and the famous fake news that are a plague of our society nowadays. I really believe that awareness and, and information are the first step so that people can um, uh, can realize that this is this happening and it might affect everybody's lives. And then change our own habits you know change can always start from us but also holding the authorities accountable for their role in in complying with the international agreements such as the paris agreement but also with our human rights which include the right to development the right to food the right to a clean environment and this is connected to an an increasing area that would deserve a full webinar which is uh, climate litigation and why is it so important to talk about this? Because all scenarios that have studied the impacts of, of the NDCs uh, that were submitted to the Paris Agreement in, in between 2015 and 2016, all scenarios present pessimistic overviews for the future. So none of the studies concluded that you know the combination of measures that we've put together as a global society so far would keep us between the 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius threshold that science warns us that is needed. Sometimes projections even pointed out to a 5.2 increase in temperature over time. And uh, not only that, every year uh, the UN Environment Programme has been publishing the Emissions Gap Report that show the huge gap that uh, we still see in the global emissions every year, and not even the pandemic has been able to lower, lower emissions uh, consistently. So just a, a final uh, reflection uh, to close uh, this talk, because I think I'm, I'm way over time already. Uh, as I said, I really believe that information is, is the first step, because sometimes uh, easy solutions uh, are out there. And even when we want to live a more sustainable lifestyle, not only people uh, are aware of the impact of the lifestyle that they lead and the food that they eat. And and whereas, for instance, changing to a vegetarian diet is, is really advisable and will have, in general, many benefits. There are uh, there are certain vegetable foods, such as nuts, for instance, and others that are very prominent in, in modern hype uh, diets, such as the vegan diet and et cetera, it also can have an important environmental and climate change impact, like you know, avocado, palm oil, nuts. So it really is important if we want to, to change and be part of, of this change, that we inform ourselves as much as possible and that we pressure authorities to, uh, to act to protect our human rights and, uh, and our ability to continue to live uh, in this planet in a more sustainable way. So with that, I I close the talk uh, and thank you very much for your
0: attention. Thank you very much, Fabiano. It's a wonderful presentation. I think you've really brought together the linkages between agriculture and both resilience, uh, adapting to climate change, but also the the urgent task of mitigation to meet meet those Paris Agreement targets. And I think like so much of climate change and law, uh, we've seen here that there is an international legal framework, but also national law legislation has a vital role to play uh, in actual implementation. Uh, And just as we wait for questions, I also think it was really interesting to see those temperature increase uh, forecasts. And that really just highlights the urgency of all countries to come forward with more ambitious nationally determined contributions and actually implement them uh, also in the area of agriculture. Um, So Fabiano, as as I see that there's no other question at the moment, let me ask you, the critical role of agriculture and and land use change generally in getting to net zero or climate neutrality, as it's sometimes called, as as you said in your presentation, the Paris goal in Article 4 doesn't mean that there are zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but it means that those emissions... Uh, reduced and also balanced by removals uh, into carbon sinks. Uh, So what is the role of agriculture in strengthening carbon sinks and how can law create incentives and frameworks uh, for that to happen? Yeah,
1: Thank you, Stephen. This is an excellent point and in fact a point that has been much debated for the past years. As I mentioned, we do have, uh, or we are seeing the development of technologies such as uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies that can help us in this process. But uh, these industries are still considered to be in their infancy. So as, as the climate challenges are really so pressing and we don't have, you know, we're consistently told that we do not have all this time, we need to turn more and more to what what is called what are called nature-based solutions. Uh, nature-based solutions are nothing more than, for instance, increasing the forested area of, of the planet and, and pre- practicing more climate-smart agriculture that does not cause so much emissions because we know that we will need more food. So the, the IPCC reports have been showing that, you know, scientific consensus is really showing that uh, all... All mitigation scenarios that are possible with the resources and the technology that we have today do include uh, uh, mitigation uh, measures in the AFOLU a- a- sector. Otherwise, it just we would just not make it. We don't have other means to to achieve what needs to be done if we do not look into this. So it, it really is a huge uh, undertaking, and, and each subsector, you know, forestry, agriculture. Land use and land use change uh, are subsectors in themselves, uh, but uh, I think overall there are different different tools and, and different incentives that need to be deployed, uh, for instance, uh, command and control uh, measures to just really try to put a stop on deforestation, but more and more also the use of incentive mechanisms so so as to uh, so as to really help in the transition to practices that can still be more costly today, such as uh, regenerative agriculture, uh, organic agriculture. Sometimes, you know, we go to the supermarket and we want to buy organic food, but it's still so much more expensive uh, in most of the countries. Uh, whereas I'm sure that everybody would be happy to consume organic food only if it was uh, more affordable, and it's really not for many people. So we we need to help farmers uh, to do this transition, and also enable the consumer to take part in this in this effort by by uh, allowing enabling really people to to be more informed. I think that you know as I said I think there's still a lot of misinformation out there, but also to make more informed choices, both by you know uh, having the pro- the products available to buy. And for instance, uh, one uh, one Product that I think would could really use, uh, for instance, a label would be different types of meat. If you want, if you want to go to the supermarket and buy more sustainable meat, let, let's call it like that. Uh, in most supermarkets, you, you still don't find that kind of information. If, if, even if you want to make that more informed uh, choice, so it really I think is a combination of factors that need to, to come together.
2: May I ask a question, Stephen? Please. Thank you, Fabiano. thank you very much. This was really a terrifically interesting uh, talk on an important topic. Um, I I read a BBC report yesterday and I have a very specific question about uh, beef, Um, that 6% of greenhouse gases uh, result from a combination of cattle raising and deforestation in the rainforest areas of Brazil. I've read two articles recently that address this. One was a piece in the New York Times um, recently that was quite compelling that said, if we're going to have an impact on this as uh, humans, we need to stop eating beef, uh, period, and find substitutes. And then I read another article that uh, Embrapa in Brazil, your research agency, has developed what they think is a carbon neutral uh, method of raising beef and helping uh, prevent deforestation by by planting eucalyptus trees, uh, fast growing eucalyptus trees in grazing pastures for cows. Um, The trees provide shade, the grass becomes more nutritious, cows grow fatter faster, they are harvested quicker and emit less methane and the eucalyptus trees themselves are harvested for wood, uh, reduces deforestation, and the overall effect is carbon neutrality if it were pervasive. Um, do you have a view on this? I mean, are we really confronting that drastic a choice between the warming we're seeing now um, in Canada, and the United States, in the Northwest, which are reaching temperatures they've never reached Uh, before and people are dying as a result Um, and you know is there a sustainable way to to feed people Um, or do we really have to make uh, more more drastic choices in in what we eat and reconsider the livestock industry generally and thank you again for your talk no thank you very
1: much for this question philip which i think is is very important and, and interesting and uh, I, I will reply with the caveat that I am a lawyer, not a, a scientist, and uh, these issues are extremely complex. In fact, I think uh, the complexity of the methodology and the science behind more action on climate change in the agricultural sector is, is really a challenge. And there are, you know, a full work stream in the climate change, um, in the climate change negotiations that it's looking into bringing more information and and scientific methods into how to do this. Uh, But with that, you know, based on what I read and studied, I think again, uh, informed choices and accurate information is is really the key because it it is true that the world overall is increasing its meat consumption and especially developing countries that have become more developed are consuming more red meat, uh, which is in many countries still a a status symbol and so on now the other side uh, of the coin is that not all beef as you said needs to be unsustainable you know i think the major challenge with beef production is that it became very industrialized and intensive and in areas that were not prone that were not ideal for that type of activity so there you have a challenge of, of deforestation which as you said in brazil is probably the main challenge, but also the fact that you have artificially fed uh, animals living confined in a very, uh, you know, small space uh, where it's very hard to have a natural control over what uh, the, the way that uh, the feeding is is uh, is done and uh, and and the manure is managed. Whereas uh, in in other areas, and you know, I'm I'm from the south of Brazil, which is really one of the biggest. Uh, Biggest livestock raising areas in in the world. They have excellent beef together with Uruguay and Argentina. You know it's very very famous for for barbecue. Uh, and and their animals were naturally raised, you know, in grazing pastures, and and they can become in a way in a part of the ecosystem where they help with with the management of the soil, and their manure becomes a fertilizer. So uh, I think really understanding how to do this. Of course, there's a certain scale to it that needs to be observed. You know, we can't continue to increase beef production, and, and reducing, I think, is is very important. But uh, but increasing sustainable beef production in the way that it can be done can also be an alternative for people that really do not want to change their diet, because that that is also you know a cultural issue that I don't think is going to happen overnight. And, and as I said, also, there are many, uh, many vegetarian diets that can have a big impact as well if people don't observe what they eat. You know, if you're going to eat imported avocados and nuts uh, every day, you're also going to be having an important environmental impact with your diet. So for me, the most, you know, most important thing is, is to be well informed and to be balanced in, 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 in the way that you make your choices and, you um, lead your lifestyle
0: well perhaps i could ask you one final question fabiano which brings together two of your areas of expertise um at at an event last year i heard an fao colleague saying that they were looking at the applications of blockchain in climate smart agriculture Um, so do you do you have any opinion on on how blockchain can be used uh, to make agriculture more sustainable
1: well i think there's a big role to be played by different emerging technologies, such as blockchain, but also artificial intelligence and machine learning and optimizing processes and uh, enhancing transparency and accessibility of data and and monitoring, for instance, you know, the the various mechanisms are being developed to monitor deforestation with with satellite imagery and uh, and artificial intelligence intelligence to detect changes in, in forest coverage and storing that in blockchain uh, recording systems that are much more open and much more reliable, um, because uh, accuracy of information like this is key, really, for climate science and for climate policy. So there is, in fact, a lot of a lot of hope and interest in deploying more uh, these emerging technologies uh, for for climate action. And if you're interested in general, I would uh, I would suggest uh, that you have a look at the Blockchain and Climate Institute that has been doing excellent research. In this area and, and 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 exploring how more of that can be done
0: thank you well i think we've seen today that that agriculture is a vital component of this massive planetary challenge of sustainability uh, there is a lot happening both in the area of technology but also in the area of law and legal innovation uh, implementing the paris agreement as well as many other uh, instruments which are relevant here so thank you again Uh, Fabiano, for this presentation and for engaging with us uh, today. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's joined us on what is uh, a very busy day in our part of the world, a very interesting day. And thank you as well uh, to the SDL colleagues uh, who have made organizing uh, this event possible. Uh, So I wish everybody a good day. and, And Fabiano, I wish you a very good evening. Thank you.
1: Thank you again for the invitation, Stephen.